Friends, let us pray together. Almighty God, we ask your blessing on this time upon your word and our hearing and understanding of it. In your son's name we pray. Amen. I've held off on talking a whole lot about loneliness over the past 15 months. Interestingly, though, I looked back to some pre-pandemic sermons, and it turns out that loneliness is something that actually came up periodically in my preaching. But during the last 15 months, and perhaps especially starting last March, it almost seems as though for many of us, our loneliness was such an intimate reality that it maybe felt as though I couldn't even mention it as life was already so fragile. I've said before that for those of us who live alone, in many ways, the lockdowns of a year ago didn't impact our home life as much. But even for us, for me, the impact was significant. I couldn't open my home to guests or connect with others in those deliberate ways. As your pastor, I was stripped of the ability to regularly visit people in the hospital or even in their homes. I know many of you visited loved ones in ways where you could only greet them through a window. We grew accustomed, all of us, to the images in the media and online, some of them inducing tears of joy and some so tragic, images of people who longed for touch and found ways to do it. I realized one day last summer that it had been months since I had touched another human. I remember the exact moment of the realization. There had been a storm, actually much like the one that happened yesterday, and my sub pump was acting up. So like many of you, I called Brian Sullivan. In his reassuring way, he simply said, I'll be right over. He came, he took a look, did what he does, and all was well. Afterward, we were standing outside watching the, the um, water drain from Lawn Avenue, and we talked about a couple other things. And then as he was leaving, I reached out my hand and we shook hands like we customarily do. We looked at one another, and I had this moment of, oh, wow, I haven't touched a person in months. He looked at his hand and then looked at me, and he said, I don't think we were supposed to do that. We both shrugged and we smiled. Human touch. When one of the members of our community was dying last summer, I promised their daughter that I would go visit because the daughter was too far away to arrive in time before she died. I went to the care home and I was given a variety of protective equipment. They were waiting for me when I got there and they had an N95 mask, a face shield, a plastic gown and gloves. I was escorted down the hallway to her room and I sat with Mary Kay. I held her hand through that medical glove, protected, but also distant. I'm not, a, I'm not a singer. I mean, I love to sing and those who are around me often enough know I try. And when I'm with others who have the ability, I enjoy adding my voice to the choir. But in that moment with Mary Kay comfortably unconscious and slipping toward death, I started to sing quietly. Songs of reassurance and of comfort and of reminders of God's inescapable love. At, at the time, I didn't know why I started to sing. I don't think I've ever done this before in a hospital room or at someone's bedside. But as I've continued to look back on this moment over the last several months, I realized that it was an unconscious attempt to bridge the loneliness, the disconnect, the distance, that the inability to touch 
had created. So much of our human experience is not just about touch, but about loneliness. Some time ago, Dom Garino shared with me a story told by a physician, Dr. Rachel Naomi Remen. She tells the story of a woman named Jessie who had a bowel obstruction, a painful bowel obstruction caused by radiation that was being used to treat her cancer. When the pain from the obstruction began at her home, she packed an overnight bag and drove herself 25 miles to the hospital. She had to pull over several times in agonizing pain and to vomit. She spent the day in the emergency room and then into the hospital. And when Rachel asked, asked her why she didn't call any of her friends, she said, they're all working. And besides, none of my friends know a thing about intestinal obstruction. Rachel asked her, then why didn't you call me? Well, it's not your field either, she replied. Jesse, this is what Rachel writes. Jesse, I said, even children instinctively run to others when they fall down. With a great deal of heat, Jesse said, yes, I've never understood that. It's so silly. Kissing the boo-boo doesn't help the pain at all. I was stunned, Rachel writes. Jesse, I said, it doesn't help the pain. It helps the loneliness. Theologian Jack Shea writes that pain and loneliness are often co-companions. Shea continues and writes that when we see another person in pain, it can actually increase the sense of distance, even if the seeing is compassionate. When we listen to another person in pain, they can be comforted because their words are being received. But touching seems to be special. It has the capacity to bridge the separateness and create a non-abandoning sense of presence. Perhaps in a year like we've had, we can understand this so much more than ever before. Perhaps as we begin to be on the other side, returning to human contact with some range of maybe trepidation or enthusiasm, we can particularly understand the pain caused by the absence of touch and the pain caused by the loneliness, those co-companions. The woman in our gospel text that Mindy read for us knew a thing or two about pain and loneliness, a thing or two about not being touched. Our text indicates that she was suffering from a bleeding disorder for 12 years. It isn't completely clear what exactly the nature of this disorder was, but what we know from contemporaneous medical texts was that it was likely a significant physical burden on the woman. Her blood loss would have led to extreme fatigue, inability to move comfortably, an inability to have children, and ultimately a very difficult death. But while alive, the woman have, would have also suffered the pain of isolation, because just as as with any woman while menstruating, her bleeding would have rendered her unclean. To touch this woman would have been against the religious laws and cultural norms. Mark describes the woman's situation this way. He writes that there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. She had endured much under many physicians. She had spent all that she had. She was no better, but rather grew worse. These statements about the woman's condition, they're, they're powerful primarily because of the way that Mark tells them. 
Yes, they're describing her condition, but he does it in a way that's in the past tense. And the words describe her condition in a way that seems to have no control. And, and Mark goes on. He writes that she had heard about Jesus and she came up behind him. All of this all of this background leads to a change in the way Mark writes. These five or six statements that flow one after another, straightforward statements about her condition, almost clinical in the way that he writes them, they lead to this point in our text where she does the unthinkable. She, a woman, takes initiative and does the one thing she believes will help her in that moment. She reaches out and touches Jesus. She takes action. In a society and under rules that have isolated and oppressed her, rules that have taken her condition and worsened it by limiting her ability to be in contact with others, and in a state of lacking control and having done everything she could do, having spent all of her money and consulted everyone she could, she exercises agency. She takes control of what she control, what she can control. She touches Jesus. She reaches out and she touches Jesus. She pushes her way through a large crowd. She makes her way to Jesus, knowing that she's touching a man who she shouldn't be touching. She touches Jesus. And in that moment, he does nothing. But in that moment, she is healed. And she can feel her body be healed. And Jesus feels it too. He notices that someone has touched him. And so he asks, who touched me? The disciples make it clear that this is a hard question to ask and, and maybe even a ridiculous one because the crowd is so tight pushing up against him. Many people are touching him. But even in the dimness of the disciples in this moment, this woman knows exactly why Jesus is asking the question. And she, perhaps in this euphoric state of having been healed, she throws herself at the feet of Jesus Mark writes that she comes with fear and trembling and falls down before him. She tells the truth of what happened. And there are a couple of societal layers here. As I said, to a Jewish audience, it would be scandalous for this woman to be out in public given her bleeding disorder. But to Mark's audience, a slightly different nuance is here. In the, in the Greco-Roman culture in which he was writing, there was also a very much established belief that an honorable woman would be modest and keep quiet and hopefully go unnoticed. And this expectation of women is one that has continued throughout much of history. So looking at this perspective, or look at this text from this perspective, it helps us to see just how radical and inspiring this scene is from both the woman's perspective and from Jesus. Hisako Kunukawa, writing about this text from a Japanese feminist perspective, writes that the woman symbolizes the burden put on us women because of our femaleness. And she stresses the initiative of the woman in the text. She writes, by being touched by her, Jesus is led to make clear that the cultic barrier established by women and men is broken down. And by talking to her personally in public, Jesus has broken down the social barrier of honor that is restricted to men. Interestingly, this is the only text in the New Testament where a woman asks something of Jesus for herself. 
And actually, she doesn't even ask in this text. She takes the initiative and reaches out and touches Jesus. And as Kinukawa observes, Jesus reacts by equally shattering the societal expectations when he responds without condemnation, but instead with the very safe intimacy of calling her daughter. And he praises her faith. And he gives her a blessing. Go in peace. If you have the worship bulletin with you or a Bible available, you'll notice that in Mark 5, our reading this morning is sandwiched between two parts of another story that starts at verse 21. It's the story of a synagogue leader named Jairus who has a daughter who is 12 years old and is sick and dying. Jairus asks Jesus to come and touch his daughter so that she will be healed. He says, come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And Jesus goes with Jairus. And that's when we find Jesus in this large crowd and interrupted by the woman who touches his clothes. Like I say, there are a lot of layers to these stories, and especially this story about Jairus and his daughter. But I want to focus our attention on what this story, coupled with the story in between, says about who Jesus is, who Jesus was, and who Jesus is in our lives now. After Jesus leaves the woman, and bids her peace, we pick up again with Jairus at verse 35. People from the house come to tell him and tell Jesus that, that the daughter has died, that Jesus and Jairus are too late to help. And so Jesus goes with the father and, and goes uh, to those who are gathered. And he, he sees them and they're, and they're crying and they're, and they're weeping. And he says, why are you crying? He knows this already, but, but they tell him that the daughter is dead. Jesus goes to the daughter. He takes her by the hand and he tells her to get up, to wake up. And she does. The people around him, including the few disciples that Jesus takes with him, like they often are, are confused as to what Jesus has done. These two stories enmeshed together, sandwiched together, they have great similarities. Both of these victims of illness are women, rendered unclean by society, one because she's died and the other because of the hemorrhage. Both of them represent the number 12. Did you notice that? The age of Jairus's daughter and the length of the woman's illness. And 12 is an important number in Jewish culture. This is included to, to really make it clear to us that these stories are meant to be connected. And both of these women are referred to as daughters. I wonder if you noticed that. The first, when uh, she's healed, uh, the woman is referred to by Jesus as daughter. And the other, of course, is the daughter of the synagogue leader, Jairus. And perhaps, though, most importantly, most importantly, the commonality between these two texts is this physical act of touch that restores both of these women to new life. But more than being about the healing of this woman's bleeding disorder or the raising of the young woman from the dead, this text together continues to show us more of Jesus, more of who Jesus is and more of who we are and more of what we need from Jesus and from one another. Jesus breaks through societal norms. He carries out his ministry in a way that seems to stand up to cultural norms. He lets love 
and love and care for the human heart guide his actions. These texts are indeed about physical healing, but healing, my friends, comes in so many ways and so many forms. Sometimes healing doesn't look like our illness going away or death being avoided. Sometimes healing means that we are accepted for who we are. Sometimes healing means that we are noticed, seen, cared for, loved. Sometimes healing means that someone reaches out in our loneliness, walks alongside us in our pain, kisses the boo-boo. Our relationships, relationships in our families, in our friendships, in our church, our relationships are part of our wholeness, part of being healed. A healing that Christ conveyed in the touch, in the gift to the woman of peace. A healing that Christ brings to us, a healing that we're called to bring to others. For all that we lost in the last 15 months, my hope and prayer is that we've gained a new understanding of our need for connection, for touch, for one another. And I also hope that we've gained a reliance or a, or a thirst for reliance upon the God who promises us healing and hope. And the God who in bringing healing into our lives looks at us and says, go in peace. In the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.